0: If you would, uh, please turn to Luke chapter 6. We'll pick up uh, where we were last week. I think we'll begin in verse 27. But uh, let me open us with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to be together again and for those prayers we have lifted up for all of our uh, friends and brothers and sisters here and others. Uh, Father, we come now to open your word, and we do pray that you would be with us as we do this, and that your Holy Spirit would uh, would speak to us this day the truth of this wonderful gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> are there any any people here like to fish? Oh yes. oh, yes. Fish or two fish? Two fish. Not eight fish. Not eat. You <laughs> can, can eat it if you want it, but does. specifically, two fish. Um, maybe in another uh, earlier iteration of our lives, we were more fishermen then, but uh, I say that because I'm about to open every can of worms on the planet uh, with this passage, so... Um, There'll be uh, plenty of, of bait left over, uh, and I will tell you ahead of time that this is going to be a bit, um, well, this is controversial, and that is what we should expect, frankly. Uh, when you open the Word of, of God and think that you're going to fathom every single verse easily, uh, that's just not a good way to begin uh, we should expect this this sort of challenge to us, and trying to find uh, the answers to these questions is, is um, has been a problem for thousands of years, and it will continue to be. And by that, I'm not suggesting that the Word of God is vague. I simply say that, um, that it's going to push the Lord's people, and it's going to push us into uncomfortable regions, and we're going to see that today. I want to... Re- uh, remind you where we ended. We, Luke chapter six, uh, among other things, is this uh, sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain, as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount, which you find in Matthew. Now, the Matthew uh, Sermon is three chapters of Matthew. We only have uh, actually less than one chapter here in Luke, so things are compressed. And most people indeed think that it's two different sermons. It doesn't really matter. What Jesus is doing in both places, among other things, is raising up a group of disciples who are going to uh, take on a mission, and that mission is going to be to take uh, the gospel of Christ into the known world at that time. And as we looked a couple of weeks back, they, they did that. Most of them died doing that. Most of them died horrifically doing that. So as Jesus uh, chooses these men, mostly fishermen and people like that, and we saw uneducated uh, men and and, uh, certainly poor men, uh, yet they were his disciples and they have uh, been responsible, frankly, for us being in this room today. Uh, But where we ended last week, uh, we went through the Beatitudes and the woes of Luke. That's found in verses 20 to 26. And what we saw is that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is not a a message just for those 12 people. It's a message for every one of us in this room. If you want to be such a disciple, realize you're going to uh, find poverty of spirit. You're going to hunger for righteousness. You're going to sorrow over your own sin, and you're going to experience persecution for the sake of Christ. Uh, All of those are... Uh, problematic to many, many people, but that is the nature of being a Christian uh, in a world that is uh, opposed to God. And the, uh, what we saw last week in 20 to 26, where the res- responses are to stay the course, stay focused on God, stay focused on the cross, and stay courageous for Jesus Christ. All of this is coming under a heading that we're calling the cost of discipleship. And we pick up today in verse 27 with what most people think is the most difficult challenge that Jesus ever gave to anyone. Uh, Beginning in verse 27, and and we're going to go today through verse 36 of this sermon. And I will read uh, that brief passage Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You can see immediately why these words would be uh, (coughs) controversial. They've been debated uh, throughout church history for many, many reasons, and there are many opinions about them, Uh, but we've got uh, these disciples who are hearing all of this. Keep in mind, uh, these men are hearing all of this uh, essentially for the first time. They've been tapped by Jesus. They've been chosen by Jesus. Told to follow him, and they're they're hearing all of this. Most of them probably uh, would be more than happy to go back to their nets. Uh, and you you recall several times within the Gospels, uh, the four Gospels, that there are moments when what is encountered by being a follower of Jesus Christ leads to some of his disciples deserting him, and they say, "I'm not willing to take on this." Um, it's understandable. These these 12 do not. One of them will, actually. Uh, Judas is one of these men sitting here listening to this sermon, but we'll get into all of that later. But what I'm going to suggest to you is what we're going to look at today uh, based upon the foundation that we saw from those beatitudes and woes is going to be unpacked for the rest of this entire gospel. Everything we're going into today is going to be uh, Built upon and illuminated in fascinating ways by Jesus as we go through the rest of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, very, very sobering words that we have, have just read. Love your enemies. Uh, looking just at verses 27 to 31, where Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, now that's, that's, that's an interesting addition there, to you who hear, I'm not simply meaning those who have the power to hear, but those who are willing to listen, in other words. Uh, not to just, uh, again, his, his 12 disciples, but uh, to you and to me today. Uh, he says, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to do good to those who hate you. I want you to bless those who curse you. I want to, you to pray for those who abuse you. Offer your other cheek to those who strike you on the cheek. Give your tunic and the one who takes away your cloak as well. Give to everyone who asks you, any of you with NIVs. I think the NIV translate that verse with ask. Give to to those who ask you. It's a better translation, frankly, than beg. Especially in the 21st century, when we hear the word those who beg from you, we tend to think of the people perhaps at street uh, intersections, and things of that nature. This is not so much talking about beggars. Uh, those, I, I think, it would be appropriate to add a beggar into this. Uh, but uh, it's specifically and more, I think, accurately talking about anyone who asks you. the The implication there is uh, is someone who has a legitimate material need, and um, and you have some legitimate reason to give to them by the way uh, that has, has that is at the centerpiece of controversy uh, because we have people on street corners what is, what are you supposed to do as a Christian when somebody is standing there in a street corner holding up a sign of whatever it, it may say a uh, hundred years ago a little, a little more than that actually the church had a wonderful solution to that most churches had an enormous tree that they would have behind the church so when somebody came to the door of the church and said i need uh you know would you give me money for lunch or or food or gas is what happens today but when you when you have someone like that the response would be okay uh we heat this building by by fire so go cut a cord of wood when you've cut the cord of wood then you can come in and and We'll help you out, with with, uh, we'll feed you, whatever. In other words, they expected something uh, for this uh, person who was at the door. I remember the uh, 12 years or so in in, uh, Seneca, uh, the afternoons, I would be the only one at the church and at least twice a week, someone would knock on the door with some kind of message like that. Uh, Some kind of story. I I ran out of gas. I was on the way to the hospital. My parents are dying, whatever it might be. And by saying that, I'm not trying to trivialize the issue. The problem is you never know when someone is is trying to uh, do something they shouldn't do versus others with legitimate needs. And it was always a problem. And what I always tried to do, if they wanted food, I would take them. Thankfully, we had an Ingalls right across the street from the church. I said, I'll take you to Ingalls and I'll buy you food. And we'll eat it right there and talk. And that usually, they disappeared at that. Uh, somebody said they needed gas. I said, okay, I'll get in your car and we'll go by, buy you a tank of gas. And that usually, they disappeared again. Uh, but the point is, uh, some of these, I'm going to suggest uh, a book or two. <clears throat> I'll do one of those now. Uh, this one, very good. When Helping Hurts. The title of this book it says everything. There, it, you are not to feel guilt-ridden as a Christian and assume that everybody who comes to you wanting something, you're obligated to meet that need because it's not always a need. Uh, most of us don't answer our phones anymore because there's so many robocalls calls. Uh, going on. There, there's always uh, people and, and uh, events trying to conspire to, to take things that are not uh, supposed to be taken. Uh, so how do you then come to these words of Jesus? Give to everyone who begs from you or who asks from you. Uh, one who takes your good, don't demand for them back. Uh, if you wish others uh, would do to you, do so to them. And all these kinds of words. That's, that's why these verses are very, very controversial. Uh, there are there are uh, denominations, there are uh, beliefs systems within the Protestant uh, faith that would say you are supposed to give to everybody. It's up to the Lord. Uh, if someone comes in and he's intentionally trying to take advantage of me, so what? That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, I would suggest that is not the way to go. But uh, again, this will be controversial. We'll be getting into this a little bit later. I'll sort of uh, show. It's kind of a macro picture of all of these things. And as I say, as we go on through Luke, we're going to unpack them. Luke, uniquely among the four gospels, I think I alluded to this before, uh, is, is focused in a, in a striking manner upon wealth and what you do with it. Luke has about uh, 10 or so parables that are unique to Luke. You don't find him in Matthew. You don't find him in Mark. You don't find him in John. And almost entirely, they have to do with people struggling with issues of money or wealth or possessions. So Luke is going to dive deeply into all of this. He's he's kind of laying the framework here. Uh, and by the way, don't scripture interpret scripture. That that is, of course, a probably the most foundational truth in terms of, of understanding the Bible. When you get to a passage like this and you read just a simple word, love your enemies, well, okay, that, goodness, that that is quite a challenge uh, in those three words alone. So what would you do? Well, you can go, for instance, to Matthew chapter five, because Matthew spends three chapters in his sermon where he takes up similar topics, uh, you can, Matthew fleshes this out much more than Luke does. That would be a benefit, but that's not going to be the only thing you want to do. You want to go back into the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, just like the New Testament, never stops talking about money. Uh, We we have trouble. Everybody uh, that I know, at least, has always had trouble figuring out what to do with all this stuff. And again, because we live in the most affluent culture in the history of the world... It should be a problem. It should be something we never stop talking about. It should be something uh, that we are pondering all the time because frankly, God is looking and God is holding responsible all of his children with what they do, with what they have. And uh, if you were to go to any of the prophets, uh, absolutely any major prophets, minor prophets, you will find Very strident passages having to do with possessions and what you do to the poor among you is a litmus test. God is watching. I am convinced that that's one reason why we have the poor among among us. Uh, And as you probably know, Jesus at one point will say, the poor you will always have with you. Among other reasons, because God is placing them among us to see what we're going to do about that. Uh, some people, as you know, if you push the pendulum all the way over to the other side, they'll go to the book of Acts and they'll say, well, you see how the Christians and in, in, uh, in those uh, early days of the church shared everything they had. Therefore, communism is the solution. Communism is not the solution. Uh, and I we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later as well. But the point is, this notion is strikingly present throughout Scripture and I'll take you to one of my absolute favorite passages that (coughs) reveals this. Uh, At one point, early point in Jesus's ministry, John the Baptist has come to herald the Lamb of God who is now on the scene. And John, not unlike uh, the other disciples and, and people of Israel, assumed that, well, if God is going to be incarnate and come down as one of us, then obviously, he's going to throw off this Roman yoke. He's going to deal with these people who are oppressing us. Uh, some people have images of, of some sort of military leader. Uh, maybe he's going to be a political leader. But whatever it is, he's going to be a powerful leader who's going to throw off the yoke of Rome and so forth. And of course, what in fact Jesus becomes is someone who is an itinerant preacher without a home, with no possessions and one who isn't at all taking any positions of power. In fact, one who says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, John the Baptist by this point has been thrown into prison by Herod. He's going to die there. And he's going to send a message by his disciples, the disciples of John the Baptist, to go to this man, Jesus, with a question saying, are you, have I blown it? Uh, I thought you were the one, I thought you were the Messiah, but I see what's not happening. And I'm just wondering if I made a mistake, are you really the Messiah? Here's how Matthew chapter 11 opens. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, this isn't directly after the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, but it's close. It's still early in the ministry of Jesus. When he finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? There's a lot of debate about what was uh, John's real question there, but certainly he's at least unsure. This is how Jesus answered it. Now, Jesus, think he could have answered any number of ways that we would have found logical, but here's how Jesus answered. Answered, verse four, Jesus answered them, you go and tell John what you hear and see, colon. In other words, here is my imprimatur. Here is is how you know that I'm really the Messiah. Verse five, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is a stunning passage in scripture that where Jesus uh, having been approached by John the Baptist and his disciples, he says, this is all John needs to know. If John wants to know if I am really the Messiah, if I'm really the Christ, the son of, of God, God incarnate, fully God, fully man, then you tell him that issues of social justice and healing are taking place. That should be uh, quite a sign to us, actually. And this, these things are not just in the Gospels. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 to 18 say, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Book of James, chapter two, verse 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Uh, you you just go on and on and on, we, if, if you ever have uh, a time to focus on scripture from, from Genesis all the way through Revelation and look pointedly at this notion of what we sometimes call social justice, I think personally, this is only my opinion, but I think personally that, that uh, most Protestant faiths, certainly most Reformed faiths, we hear the phrase social justice and we've seen that abused to the point where we don't want to hear it at all. We don't want to talk about it at all. And that is the mistake. Um, Let me get to uh, to another one. Ministries of Mercy. uh, book by Tim Keller. Uh, You bring up Tim Keller's name in in some circles and people want to to criticize for one thing or another. I don't know any human on the planet uh, that uh, can be free of criticism and sometimes worthy criticism. Uh, Tim Keller was a professor at Westminster when I was there, uh, when I was working there. I'd already graduated. And this was his doctoral thesis. I've never read a better book than this on social justice but better stated ministries of mercy this is a more biblical title than social justice social justice tends to have become wrapped around a socialist uh, Marxist agenda Uh, ministries of mercy is what the Bible talks about even though this book is now 33 years old uh, I still have not seen anything better that talks about what the church ought to be doing it incorporates a lot of what this is talking about. How does the church do mercy ministry without uh, taking someone who is limping and making the limp worse? It is not always the case that somebody who thinks they need something actually needs that something. Maybe they need something different, but always redemptively applied. And I think uh, you will like this book at... uh, Ministries of Mercy by Tim Keller. I, I recommend this book. I like this book. I like Tim Keller. Uh, <clears throat> and I've seen what he does uh, up close and personal, as they say. Uh, let's get back to Luke here. Luke chapter six, verse 27. Love your enemies. Uh, that alone is, uh, we can we could talk for weeks and weeks. Uh, does that make us Mennonites? Does it make us Quakers? Should we be conscientious objectors? Could a Christian ever fight in an army? Can a Christian go to war? How can we, if we're to love our enemies? Uh, Many, many, many uh, controversies go in these three words, love your enemies. Uh, How about self-defense? Suppose someone breaks into my house at night. Can I do anything about that? Interesting passage. Uh, Turn to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22. Verses 2 and 3 say this. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. What those two fascinating verses seem to be saying is that if someone breaks into your home, self-defense to the point of death, defending your family is an absolutely biblical mandate. Uh, But isn't he my enemy when he breaks in? Yes, he is your enemy. But again, what you want to do always with scripture is find the entirety of what the Bible is teaching. What does Jesus mean simply by love your enemies? Well, he's assuming that we're all aware of all of these other aspects of this very difficult issue. But that passage in Exodus is, is a fascinating. What what really fascinates me in that those two little verses is the second verse there, where it says if if the guy breaks in in the daytime apparently then you can't kill him. I don't know why that is. You can you can kind of corral him. I guess maybe the assumption is people would see it or know it and uh, assist you or something like that, or or no one would ever break into your house in the daytime. I don't know what that means. But the point is, I. Uh, Love your enemies, yet we've got these passages about self-defense. How about capital punishment? Uh, Can a Christian support capital punishment in a government and yet love your enemies? Suppose you were a Christian who ran uh, for a district attorney, you were elected. uh, Can you push for a capital punishment verdict in a certain case? Uh, This would be a legitimate question. Uh, That brings me to this big beluga here. Uh, I've never come across a book like this. This is a 1,000-page book that reads like a 50-page pamphlet. Uh, You will be stunned if you were to obtain this book, how wonderful it is and how easy it is to read. Uh, This is a book by a man named John Frame. Frame uh, was a professor of apologetics at uh, Westminster in Philly, then at Westminster in Escondido out on the West Coast, Uh, retired from uh, RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, teaching apologetics. He's now uh, Professor Emeritus there, but this book happens to be entitled The Doctrine of the Christian Life by John Frame. What he does in this book, this book is he takes the Ten Commandments and he talks about Christian ethics. Takes each of the ten and goes through and he takes up all of these kinds of issues. I've, I've never found an issue that Frame does not talk about here. And when you think you you understand a commandment or whatever, Frame will bring up a question. You think, hmm, never thought about that one. And uh, things such as capital punishment, uh, just war. Is, is that a biblical teaching? The teaching of just war? Uh, by the way, Frame says the key in this particular phrase, love your enemies, lies in differentiating between love vengeance, and self-defense. We're going to get into that a little bit uh, more shortly. Um, The New Testament adds the emphasis on showing love to those outside our community and it extends the covenant community to all nations. Now here we're going to open another, another very large can, but you need to know these things, especially if you're a reformed Christian, you should know the covenants. There's a reason that we talk very, very uh, with, with smiles on our faces about covenant theology. Because when you see the Bible through the covenants, it unfolds the entirety of the book. It's, uh, I used to always talk about flounders. I, I love flounders. I can't catch them, but I love to eat them. Uh, But if you've ever eaten a flounder, I don't mean these little things. Today you go and they give you this little filet and they call it a flounder. I'm convinced it's a catfish. But at any rate, (laughs) a flounder ought to cover this thing. And when you're finished eating it, what you've got is this, this beautiful bone structure, a backbone that runs from this side of the plate to this side of the plate, hangs off both sides on all these bones coming out. The covenants form the backbone of scripture. That's the backbone of the flounder, if you will. Everything comes off of these covenants. Now you begin with a covenant with Adam in the garden. You move very critically, importantly, into Genesis uh, six or so, where you start bumping into this guy named Noah and God wipes everything out again. Then when he lets the flood waters recede, he he's, there's another covenant in place here. That covenant is very, very important because it's like a second beginning. Only this time, God is aware that there is sin. When he makes the covenant with Adam in the garden, it's before there is sin in the world. When he makes the covenant with Noah, he says pointedly in Genesis, I know that your hearts are evil all the time, but I'm gonna make this covenant with you anyway. And he sets out some issues in that covenant that are unique to that covenant and that pointedly say these words are going to cover the history of mankind until I destroy the world by fire again. This covenant is going, to, uh, is going to be, frankly, for recreation. He doesn't spend one jot or tittle on redemption. The covenant of Noah has nothing to do with redemption other than the fact that it gives life and continued blessing to sinful man and, he, and God uh, even reigns himself in in, in a way uh, but this covenant is very important then you go to covenants with Abraham where God hints that through you all the nations in the world are going to be blessed but I'm making this people that I'm going to call Israel an appointed covenant with Moses to say now here are the here are the legal structures here's here are how the, uh, the do's and don'ts he says how I don't want you to live Israel. Going to a covenant with David, where David is is going to be uh, in the line, if you will, in the lineage of this son of man, of Jesus, through whom the new covenant and final covenant is going to come, through whom all of we uh, here today are participants, pointedly focused on redemption. So each of the covenants has a separate reason for being. And uh, if if you know that flow, then you can open to any book, any of the sixty six books, and you know where you are in that uh, flow of of those covenantal teachings. Uh, we're going to in Luke uh, Luke chapter ten. Uh, we're going to get to the Good Samaritan. Uh, that again, a a uh, a parable that Luke uh, presents to us. Uh, in a in a very unique way and you remember that that parable I'm sure It's very very famous we all love it uh, but you remember what happens there uh, you have this man who has been beaten and robbed and he's he's dying and laying in a ditch by the road and you have um, uh, there's a there's a religious type guy he comes and walks by sees a guy walks on by you have a very uh, ethical uh, You have an attorney, frankly, who walks by. He sees a guy, he keeps going. Then you have a Samaritan who is a, we would call a half-breed. Samaritans were created when the Northern Kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity by the Assyrians and they imported other ethnicities into Israel and there was intermarriage for 200 years. By the time uh, the Good Samaritan story takes place, if you assume that it's happening in the day of Jesus, 700 years of intermarried uh, ethnic uh, turmoil, if you will. This Samaritan has no reason whatsoever to help a Jew who is lying, dying in a ditch. But he is, in fact, the man who stops and goes and saves the man's life, pays the the innkeeper to keep him up uh, for a few days until, uh, until others can take over for him. Not expecting anything back. So there's no religious test, there's no ethnic test. He was simply a victim of a robbery and he loved him. Now, the lawyer who asked the question to Jesus begins that parable, who is my neighbor? Jesus answers, to whom will I be a neighbor? That's the real question of the Good Samaritan. It's not so much who is my neighbor, is it this person versus that person? The better question of that parable is to whom will I be a neighbor? And the answer is anyone I find in need I don't worry about ethnicity I don't worry about skin color I don't worry about health wealth I don't worry about anything at all if a person is in need that is my neighbor Um, now capital punishment would just stick a toe in that water uh, we've seen already that, that this love for enemies is not incompatible with self-defense. Uh, capital punishment, as you know, is an Old Testament concept. There were 18 different acts that the Old Testament says that should follow, that should have capital punishment meted out. The person who does any of those 18 things should be put to death. So the Bible's not speaking about capital punishment there uh just war. I, I am not going to get into that uh, today. Maybe we can, maybe we can come back. Just war uh, comes to teaching by what's called the natural law. This is uh, this may be the biggest can of worms of all uh, that we are going to encounter as we go through the Gospel of Luke. Natural law simply means a teaching that because God has created the world and everybody in it. There is a natural law the likes of which every creature on earth knows. You don't have to be taught it. You don't have to read it in a book. You just know natural law, and you should abide by natural law. Now, Romans 1 has a lot to say about this. Romans 1, verse 18, frankly. If you read Romans 1, verse 18, that begins all the way through verse 32 in Romans 1, is this teaching... That what the unbeliever does with natural law or general revelation, the unbeliever suppresses the truth, and everything that follows in Romans one from verse eighteen is based upon the fact that the unbeliever they may know natural law, but they volitionally suppress what they know so natural law is going to uh, is going to play a, a it does play a major role in, in every Christian um, iteration that, that, uh, says just law does not violate love your enemy. Uh, and we're, we don't have the time to get into that, but we will be getting into it later. Uh, the love that follows here, uh, all of these other passages, all of these uh, verses in Luke that we've read, uh, strike you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, uh, give to anyone who asks, uh, again, that that too, the Bible will will qualify. Uh, lend to those who expect to receive. What credit is that to you? Uh, love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Uh, be merciful. The, the verse thirty six. Even as your father is merciful. Uh, these kinds of issues are boiling under every single one of these verses we just read, and. As you could see, it would take. We would need one class per verse out of these verses, twenty-seven to thirty-six. I'm not going to do that, and the reason again is because Jesus is going to do that for us. As He gives us His Gospel of Luke, Luke is going to unpack every one of these things, and we'll see them again. We see them largely through the parables that is he's, uh, he's going to bring uh, to us. But uh, it, it's uh, it, it's quite a bit uh luke six twenty seven and 35 are, are the word love is found there and it's the word agape i'm sure you have all heard many many lessons on that word agape that's the, the essence of this love that is being discussed here in luke chapter 6 there are four greek words for love eros a sexual thing that's not here uh, storge, love within the family, like the love that a parent has for a child, that's not used here. Philia, strong affections, where we get the word philanthropy. Philharmonic is a love for music. Uh, philanthropy, philos. Uh, philia, a love for anthropos, for man. So philanthropy, a philanthroper is one who likes to give to the causes of man. Uh, but agape, is a biblical word that is a unique, divine kind of love. It is love for the unlovely. It is not a natural love. That's why when you become a believer, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, this word agape is placed on you. Now, every bit of this uh, comes from Jesus Christ. And I will will simply finish. uh, Not going to get into that. I don't have time to get into that today, uh, but we will. The we, Lord willing, we shall return to all this. But think about what, why, when Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. What, what does that mean? Where does that come from? In the entirety of the Old Testament, because you're under the Mosaic covenant, it's a legalistic covenant. It's meant to be that way. It is legalistic. Lex talionis was the ethic of the Old Testament. That means an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's retributive justice. It's retribution. Justice is in place in order. If, if the punishment was this, uh, or excuse me, if the crime is this, the punishment should be somewhere related to it. If somebody steals a snicker from CBS, you don't send them to the electric chair. Uh, but if somebody goes into uh, a city today and kills 10 people, which happens virtually every day now. Uh, yes, that's an entirely different thing, and the punishment for that crime should, uh, should, should match the degree of the crime. <clears throat> when we get to the New Testament, we're under the new covenant, a covenant of redemption. Why, if I'm hit on the cheek, do I turn my other cheek? Does that mean retributive justice no longer applies? No, it does not mean that. God is as totally convicted and, and intent on retributive justice today as he was in the day of Moses. But what has happened now is I have a savior who has gone to a cross and received that other strike. When I turn my cheek, when the person strikes me, I don't strike the person back because Jesus was struck for me. Jesus has taken on all the retributive justice that any of our sins ever meet out, including the sins of murder, the sins of, of abortion, all of those things that are taking the life of an individual, which should lead to our own lives being taken, are now met in Christ by forgiveness. Not because God has decided to become easy all of a sudden, but because God has turned his retributive justice all on his son. Because at one point, Jesus comes in to his enemies. They beat him. They, they spit on him. They curse him. They remove all of his clothing. They drag him up to a hill, nail him to a tree. And as he's lying, dying, with blood dripping from hands and feet, a spear is thrust through his ribs or below his ribs into his internal organs. All of that abuse and he dies with forgiveness on his lips. He dies turning the other cheek because he has received that second slap for your benefit, for my benefit. And he dies saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He dies, in other words, loving his enemies. That is the paradigm you and I have. It is not easy. Uh, Agape love does not come naturally. It comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, but it is the mandate for the Christian because Jesus has taken our punishment. Jesus has not just loaned people. He's given salvation to people and was repaid nothing. When Jesus goes to the cross in all four gospels, it says when we were yet his enemies, Jesus went to the cross for us. That's the paradigm. And uh, we're going to have fun looking at that through the Gospel of Luke. Let's pray. Uh, Father, these words are so, so difficult. Indeed, they are impossible for sinners uh, such as us. Uh, but, Father, they are nonetheless your command uh, that we would be like that Samaritan. When we see a need, we meet it, but we meet it with intelligence. Sometimes the simple way of meeting a need will, in fact, hurt the person. Father, it takes great wisdom to know how to differentiate this. And we thank you that you've given us your word to help us do exactly that to differentiate, to understand these very difficult verses, what it means to love our enemies. We can do that, Father, because you have loved us when we were your enemies. Help us to keep the cross firmly in the middle of our windshield and know that, and understand that, and think about, and reflect upon, and pray about that, and be willing to turn that other cheek. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.